is the Modern Rubbish Podcast with your hosts, Wyatt Koish and David Paha. In this episode, Unearthing. Enjoy! Hey, so now that we have a Patreon, we actually do have a Patreon, everybody. Um, and we have a Ko-Fi, Kofi, I don't know. I think it's meant to rhyme with coffee, so Kofi. A uh, little bit of admin while we're... Uh, in this awkward transition between the pre-show riffing and the part where we're actually going to release it. Um, we have the both of those available now. Uh, links will be in the show descriptions if you want to support what we do. That is greatly appreciated. Um, this is really just something we do because it's fun and interesting and all that. And so uh, if that's... If you enjoy what, what we do and you want to let us know financially... <laughs> <laughs> that would be that would be great. As always, you can also just email us, follow us on on Instagram, all those links in the show notes. Um, we'd love to hear from people. The reason I bring up Patreon, aside from that sales pitch, is that uh, maybe we will release what we've just done as a Patreon exclusive. So <laughs> hear about hear about David White. Yeah, hear about our childhoods. <laughs> um, that's the kind of thing that we can put behind a paywall. This is juicy information. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that out of the way. Hell yeah, hell yeah. So this week was unearthing. Yeah, I guess uh, along with Crampton, we're doing some stuff that some some things that aren't movies. Yeah, this is this is a good one though because it's kind of like it's well, it's written, it's written, it's sort of how would you describe it? It's it's not like a graphic novel. It's more like. Uh, like artful prose, maybe poetry. It's pretty poetic. Yeah, so it's, I mean, I have them. Okay, I'm going to commit myself to it now by saying this. I'm going to do a brief video for our Instagram showing off all the different versions of Unearthing that exist because I own all of them. Um, (laughs) So Unearthing was originally written for this book, uh, London City of Disappearances. Yeah, I saw that. Which is a, a collection, anthology of various essays, poems, travelogues, fantasies, whatever, about London and disappearances. So Alan Moore, being friends with Ian Sinclair, decided to write Unearthing, a biography of his friend Steve Moore, no relation, for this, because Steve Moore lived his entire life in the neighborhood Shooter's Hill, which used to be in Kent, but then became absorbed into the city of London, so it counted. Um, so in, in the form that it exists in London, City of Disappearances, it is just, uh, I think I should have it bookmarked here. It is just, um, you know, it, it's just text. It's just like. Yeah. But then it came out, this was 2006 that this, right? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Um, 2006 was the London, the, the London book. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the version of Unearthing that I was reading was 2012, I think. Yeah, you have the yeah. the one with Mick, the Mick Jenkins, uh, Mitch yeah. Jenkins photos. Yeah, yeah, these this one. Yeah, yeah. Hell yeah. Um, yeah. So then, six years later, it came out in the form of a kind of art book. It, yeah, it's not a comic. It's but it does have an image on every page. Yeah, <clears throat> largely <clears throat> photos. Yeah, the art's pretty cool. It kind of reminds me of how, how would you describe it? Like. Kind of reminds me a little bit of the collages from uh, Sandman. Yeah, it does feel like like this one I can... that I opened up to. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it does feel like like uh, Dave McKean, 
who's the guy who... Is that that's his name, yeah. That's the guy who did the, all those Sandman covers and um, must have done something with Alan Moore. These are, like, <clears throat> particularly more photographic, though. Like... Yeah. They're, like, really well... Really well-made photographs, too. It, pretty incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they are, like... They do feel somewhere... At least from a technical and compositional angle, they do feel like high fashion photography. Yeah, right. Pretty precise. Things like that. Yeah. Yeah, really precise, really clean, really, <clears throat> but also fully atmospheric. Yeah. And so if for this photo book, though Alan Moore, you know, is mo- mostly known as a comics artist, and this is a book that mixes visuals and words, it's not a comic, so some of the images are more abstract and suggestive, where some others are more illustrative of what's going on on the page. But they did, Alan Moore and Mitch Jenkins did uh, hire someone who looks sort of like Steve Moore to represent him in the photographs. Mm, Yeah. And so you do have a bit of like character consistency in the photos. In the the back of it, it says, it like shows the list of uh, like characters who I guess were in the portraits and stuff. And... His brother, Steve Moore's brother, David? Chris. Chris, yeah, Chris Moore. Chris Moore, Chris Moore, sorry, is in it. And I'm trying to think, like, oh, which which one is he? You know, like, I'm not entirely sure. Because, the, I mean, the story show tells that he has, like, a bum eye. Yeah, um, and so then the final form, while we're running down the, the sort of forms of this, is uh, because Alan Moore has such a, an evocative speaking voice, it was also released as a sort of audiobook slash uh, spoken word performance piece. Um, he did perform it live uh, on at least a couple of occasions. You know, Alan Moore speaking with the images being projected behind him and with the music that was written for the audiobook spoken word performance record being played at the same time. So then that's sort of yeah. the, the the deluxe edition of, of this is... Uh, what is it? Three, one, two, three, four. It's a four LP box mm. um, that also comes with three CDs. I was wondering, because I listened, because you gave me the audio, and I was listening to the audio while reading through the book, which is kind of cool, because he's Alan Moore's voice just kind of leading it, and then me just sort of absorbing the imagery around it. I could read the text if I wanted to or not, but... Just sort of absorbing the nature of it. But the music of it was was really cool. And does the LP tell who made the music? I'm glad you asked because, so the funny thing is, I, I have had this box set for years and a bit like the, like the photo book, the text is laid out, it's, it's laid out aesthetically more than it is for purposes of legibility. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And so uh, somehow prior to... <laughs> doing my pre-episode research, I had never read the credits oh. of the LP. And I, I was um, shocked to discover <laughs> who made the music. Fucking Dose One. Dose One. A- Anacon, like Clouded, Y, like all that, like Bay Area, late 90s, early 20s, uh, early 2000s, weird hip hop. Oh, I'm not familiar, actually. You know that song Dead Dogs 2? It's hard to stand the sight of two dogs dead under a sky so blue you have to stop the blood to your head. That No, I, no? I'm not familiar. Oh, wow. No, damn. That's okay. like Bay Area so, stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it was like Northern California stuff. And at least like when I was in high school, that was kind of 
a lot of my friends liked uh, weird rap stuff, and that was kind. There was this sort of bridge with guys like Dose One between like weird rap stuff and then like Aphex Twin and that sort of uh, electronic thing. Yeah, interesting. And so that those records are like you know in there as sort of transitional ones for me. Um, but yeah, so this is musical score written and produced, written, produced, and performed by Crook and Flail, which is a group, a, a partnership of Adam Drucker and Andrew Broder. Adam Drucker being Dose One, weird rapper, beat maker, oh, wow. etc. Yeah. And Andrew Broder was had an alias called Fog. Um, so same mm-hmm. kind, same generation. Um, but featuring Stuart Braithwaite, primary guitarist of Mogwai. Oh, nice. Yeah. Justin Broderick from Godflesh. Oh, yeah. yeah. And Mike Patton. Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. And then a couple, then George Cartwright, Matt Darling, and Paul Metzger, who all seem to be more like Midwestern, like improv guys, oh, like okay. f- free jazz type players. And then fucking Zach Hill from Death Grips. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, and Hella. So, yeah. Wow, that's interesting. Kind of star-studded. I wonder how they, how that came together, with, especially with English dudes. Is it? So, I know that Alan Moore, because, okay, I have this too. Uh, Mud and Starlight collected interviews mm. with Alan Moore. Um, and this is covered briefly. I was actually looking for something else in here, which is not in here, um, but I did find some info about this, that Alan Moore apparently is just a longtime Mike Patton fan. So there's oh, nice. yeah. there's that. Um, and then Justin Broderick is from very near him and Godflesh, I mean, Napalm Death and Godflesh and all that yeah. were kind of big at the same time. Alan Moore was becoming a big countercultural figure in his own right. So they seem to have crossed paths um, for a while. But then I know, too, that like at, at various points, the Dose One connection makes sense to me, even though he's American, just because Dose, Dose One in particular was very, like, very accomplished lyricist in a very, like, you know, William Burroughs-ish yeah. style, which I could really see appealing to Alan Moore. Well, I, yeah, that was another thing. This this performance is very Burroughs-ish. Yeah. Like performing it, because Burroughs did that, like, in his later years, right? He did, he went on tour, essentially. Yeah. performed his writings in it, kind of in this fashion. There's actually that... Um, you know that uh, material? It's like a one of the Bill Laswell projects. Mm, no, yeah, Bill Laswell was. I know, yeah, yeah, you know Bill Laswell. Yeah, um, but not, not that one. Yeah. Material was one of his. Um, you know, it's sort of like sort of dub projects. Oh, cool! And he made a record called Seven Souls with William Burroughs, where oh, nice. it's Burroughs nice. reading parts of um, the Western Lands. Oh hell yeah! Over over dub beats. And it's nice. It's really good. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah well, it, listening to the Unearthing album reminded me of uh, William Bur- Burroughs with Kurt Cobain. Yeah, his, like that album, The Priest. They called him or something like that. I can't remember. Um, which is all guitar. Kurt Cobain playing guitar, and then William Burroughs speaking over it. Uh, and this this did have a similar sort of vibe to it. Mm. Yeah, it was funny because so Alan Moore has done a few of these prior to this had done a few of these these like performance pieces where it would be a there's a theatrical element and a spoken word element and a live music element and the first one 
done as a part of his partnership with Steve Moore, who this project is about, which was the the Moon and Serpent Grand Temple of Egyptian Marvels, or Temple of Grand Egyptian Marvels, one of those, um, was called The Birth Call, and music was by David J. from Bauhaus. Oh, nice. Because Bauhaus are a Northampton band, where Alan Moore is from, and so apparently, so right from the get-go, you're like, okay, this dude is clearly, you know, hip to the the weird music scene. Um, yeah. And then he did a few other ones, like the Highbury Working, which is kind of a similar style, but about uh, an apartment where Crowley did a bunch of stuff in London. And, oh man, I'm forgetting the names of the other ones, but there's there's a few of them. And those were all done with a British musician called Tim Perkins, which is funny because that's almost the name of our acquaintance, Tim Perkins. <laughs> yeah, I was going yeah, to say. Um, cool. Yeah. So sometimes I see that and I'm like, wait, Tim knows Alan Moore? Oh, no, it's a different name. <laughs> yeah, so where should we go with this? Because <laughs> there's a lot to say. We've said a lot about the formats of, of this project, but not necessarily what it is. Yeah, okay, so it's like a biographical story on Steve Moore, who was an acquaintance of Alan Moore, right? Uh, also a writer, Mm-hmm. And also within the similar sort of circles of like comics and weird fiction kind of stuff. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the um, they met, at least, you know, according to Mud and Starlight, highly recommended collection of interviews with Alan Moore by Patrick O'Malloy. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, apparently they met uh, Steve Moore. Steve Moore died in 2014. Um but he's like five or six years older than Alan Moore. And so apparently they met when Alan Moore was 14 and Steve was, I guess, 19 or 20. Mm. And uh, it was Steve Moore who showed Alan Moore how to like panel out a comic strip, how to... Oh, sick. Because Steve was already, you know, kind of started. He'd he'd made some entryways into the comics field and Alan Moore was, oh man, I'm, I'm super into that stuff. And... So it was a little bit of that maybe older older brother type relationship, but um Yeah. But yeah, basically, I mean, if if we can say as as one should say that the entire landscape of comics would be nothing like what it is without Alan Moore, that actually that would be because because of Steve Moore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that if Steve Moore yeah. hadn't shown Alan how to how to write for a comic, then none, none of this would have happened. Yeah. Well the like the 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 nature of this story is is pretty somber to me. It was pretty somber to me. Like, um, I, I mean, Steve Moore lives this relatively isolated lifestyle, you know? Um, and the, so the whole, the whole story is him and the sort of intricacies of his life, the subtle, the subtle shifts and the things that form him. And it's, it's very much like, like the beginning of it is, is cool because it's the nature of, this part of London that formed him. So the whole beginning starts off and it has, it's like nothing to do with Steve Moore. It's about the land itself and how it like sort of shapes and like it's building almost this like psychological material. You can see it like building the psychology of, of Steve Moore before he's even born, you know, and then passing it into his like, you know, his, his family that's going in, you know, it's, 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 I really like the beginning of this. Cause it's, it, yeah, it has that, um, 
how would you you like you're the one who showed me like is it psychogeography which is like from hell kind of vibe you know yeah and and given that this was written for something Ian Sinclair was putting together yeah that makes sense that- right and so the beginning has that whole thing where it's talking about the land itself and I wrote down uh land becomes psychology the living universe and this is actually just something I've been thinking about personally a lot like the living nature and uh, spirit of everything around us, you know, either, you know, animals, plants, or inanimate objects too, you know, monuments that we put our psychology into. So yeah, this London is forming in this way. Um, and it's, it's like showing this kind of, um, this material, this proto-material that is going to become the psychology of, of Steve Moore. Yeah. And people like that, yeah. Yeah, there was something where it's about a specific person, so it's a biography, but because that person lived their entire life within yeah. within four paces of the room in which they were born, then, it, yeah. then their life ends up being the story of a place, so. Yeah, yeah. Because, <laughs> um, yeah, that, is, me, that yeah. is crazy. <laughs> That, which is, I think for me, um, I just, I think maybe that was a shock to think that, you know, like, because to me, it would be shocking if I stayed in that area my whole life, you yeah. know, like, I I mean, I've, I've come back to the Midwest. I grew up in the Midwest, but I did move away and live. And they say like, I don't know, they say in 1985, Steve Moore moved away to the only other location very briefly, yep. I think it says, right? Yeah. <laughs> um. But him and his brother, so he lived with his brother yeah. in the same house. Yeah. I think that that added to the sort of somber nature of the story. Definitely. If it, it yeah. I mean, it's it's me, also, in, it's interesting because, like, I have only ever, the first time I read this, Steve Moore was already dead. Mm. And when you, when I read it the first time, I thought, how could this have been written when he was still alive? Yeah, actually, I didn't know that, until just now when you said 2014 when he died. Yeah. I thought this was written after his death. It really feels like, <laughs> yeah. it feels like yeah. a memorial, but it was written eight years before he died. Right. And so it, it it's interesting. I mean, I've listened to the, I've listened to it a lot. I've read it in text form once and I've read it, read it at least once through for the, of the photo book and then just looked at the photo book at times too. And um, in listening to it again in preparation for this, it was impossibly sad for me. Mm, yeah. I, I really yeah. like couldn't, I, I had to stop listening to it at a certain point. Not for mm. any, that's not no, any I kind of trigger yeah. warning or like nothing. It's it's all very <laughs> gentle and beautiful. And, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, I just, it was so fucking sad. It's sad, yeah. The, I, um, well, it's like the, this is what I kind of loved about it. it also, it shook me in a, in a similar way where I was like, this isolation is relatable. <laughs> you know, I'm like, I'm like, oh no, there's a part of me that's Steve Moore, you know? Yeah. And, but this is such a sad story, but it's also just like, it's the nature of this type of person who's trying to dive into the deeper, deeper communion with like life, you know? So, and you don't always get to see it from an outside perspective. So uh, there was a part of me when I was reading it that was almost like, like Alan Moore was telling me stuff about myself <laughs> in some ways. Yeah. And I was like, oh, fuck. You know, I had that thing where I'm like, oh, fuck, I got to go. 
I got to go sign up for dating apps right away. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, oh, I mean, there's even, like, even though I'm, you know, I'm married and I live uh, <laughs> 2,000 kilometers away from where I was born, I, I, there's still parts of it that I relate to. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I, I mean, I'll just run it down, like, really quickly because it's just sort of the synopsis because the, there's going to be multiple parts that I think we're going to want to get into more. Mm more deeply. But so yeah, the gist of it is this is Alan Moore biographizing his best friend, Stephen Moore, Steve Moore, and um, begins with a kind of setting the stage for, you know, prehistoric London, Roman London, uh, to Steve Moore's direct ancestors, his parents, his birth, his childhood, his upbringing, getting into sci-fi fantasy, the comics field, meeting Alan Moore, uh, getting into the general counterculture, other authors, uh, Michael Moorcock, Ian Sinclair, um, all of them, and then finally getting into magic, the occult. Steve Moore wrote a number of books about the I Ching, so into I Ching and Taoism, and then kind of building to, I guess, a climax around Steve Moore's, the realization of Steve Moore's lifelong devotion to Selene, Greek goddess of the moon, uh, with his demonstrating to Alan Moore his ability to conjure her to physical appearance. Mm, yeah. And then it kind of ends with him disappearing into the landscape of his neighborhood. Interestingly, at the at the spot where eight years later they would scatter his ashes. So it's the story, you know, and it really does feel like it's the story of, it's, it feels like he's dead the whole way through. Um, yeah. Also, he does, he's not in it at all. Like, uh, people that are around the scene are in it and being photographed for the book, but not him. Someone else plays him. Says, Which yeah, I'm assuming strange. was probably because of... I mean, I've, I've looked, and there's, there are only two or three photos of Steve Moore that are really available uh, to the rest of us. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Which I would, I would imagine is probably due to shyness. Probably yeah, being gotcha. like... I don't, well, I'm a sci-fi writer. Do you really think I want, you know, a hundred photos of me <laughs> everywhere? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, he has made other appearances. Like he's in Promethea in the background of some panels and um, oh, right. he's in Albion. He's in, he's in a few other comics as little like reference, little Easter egg things. But um, nice. yeah, so that's sort of the, that's the, the rough outline of this. This exists in so many forms. I'm sure one of them is findable for people out there to read, listen to, look at, whatever. So you can get up to speed with what we're doing. Yeah, it's also, it's 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 written, but it's not like a book. You can read it in a few hours. Yeah, it's and... like 40 pages in the, in the, the Ian Sinclair version, so. Is it? Yeah. Yeah, I think the, the the record is probably somewhere around like two hours, hour, yeah. hour and a half, two hours. So yeah, it's not not any more of an investment really than watching a movie would be. Yeah, totally. Um, but yeah, so I mean, I think the, the main things are that this is, you know, this is about the, kind of in all ways, this is about the guy who gave us Alan Moore <laughs> on some level. Because this is mm -hmm. the guy who showed Alan Moore how to write comics and then, you know, 25 years later was the guy who who told him about the occult. So the two things that, you know, we all know Alan Moore for, being a magician and a comics writer, both stem from Steve Moore's influence. And this feels mm. like yeah. 
this feels like that's laying Jeez. laying all that plain. That's like if Alan. It, it feels to me like it's Alan Moore saying, "If you, I didn't get this all from nowhere. If you think I yeah. have something, it's because this guy gave it to me." You know. So there was like there was a number of uh, there's a number of references in it. <laughs> like I have to scour through and just jot down mm. all of the references that are being made. And I and I might have just attributed them to like prose or just like fanciful writing, except I could catch a couple of them, you know? And so I was like, oh, these are real things, you know? <laughs> and so I have to go back now and collect all of the all of these references that are within the story because they there's just I think just trails of things that you could go down speak from this book. You could start from this book, find reference, and then just go down a whole trail of like art. Oh yeah. And influence of all kinds, you know? Uh, that's always been something like, that's always been something for me with, I mean, with Alan Moore, uh, with Alan Moore in, in particular, but also in general, like I've always, <laughs> not to like big myself up as like, oh, I'm an interesting person. And people ask me, Wyatt, how are you such an interesting person? But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, sometimes people will ask, like, oh, how do you find out about stuff? How do you, whatever. And it's like, well, it's because I find one thing that I like, and then I read as much as possible about that thing yeah. until I discover what those people liked. Right. And then I find that stuff, and I follow that chain. It's like a family tree where, yeah, what what was the thing that that inspired this thing I like, and then what was the thing that came before that? And so that's, that's a process I've been, you know, in, involved in for my whole adult life, but it's particularly rewarding with Alan Moore because he's very transparent about, mm. oh yeah, this is references. <laughs> like, oh yeah, I'm not yeah. doing this in a vacuum. There's all this stuff coming in there. And, but then also because I think he does this, clearly does the same thing of, you know, find, you find one thing you like and then you find the things that fed into that and then you you make that map. And so sometimes it feels like he's he's done that. And then with, unearthing with really any of his comics with all these things that then he presents this this piece of work to you that has an engaging story good plot relatable characters or whatever but also is kind of a way of teaching you all these little things mm, yeah about about art about culture about whatever the the subject at hand is um and it makes it really fun because then exactly like you're saying you you end up being like this is overwhelming <laughs> but yeah. but in a good way yeah, well, it's there's just so much information. Like, like even Steve Moore, I didn't I didn't even know much about him, but now knowing that he was like really well versed in I Ching and like Chinese philosophy, I'm like, fuck, I got to go pick up those books and start reading those, man. Yeah, I have. Um, I have. This is useless because we don't do a video podcast, but um, <laughs> the trigrams of Han. Oh, nice. That's they bring that one. I mean, that's directly referenced in here. That's so. definitely why I bought it. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, yeah. it came up in there. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, like Joel Barocco, who is another friend of Alan Moore, who's had been mentioned on the podcast at least once, who also has very dry scholarly books about the I Ching. Mm. Yeah, this is not a, a, a flighty, fanciful, new agey, I Ching book. This is very much a scholarly sinologist type mm. book. So, um, dude was serious. Dang, yeah. I would, yeah, that just came through his own studies. 
As far as I can tell, I mean, pretty much all the like biographical information I have um, about Steve Moore comes from this. Mm-hmm. I've read a few. I've read a lot of interviews with Alan Moore that fleshes out a little bit of it. But pretty much all the info I have about the guy comes from this, and it really seems like he was totally autodidactic mm. with writing, magic, divination, all of that. It really seems yeah. like he just would dive into stuff. There, uh, I thought it was really interesting the the way that, that he described the like chaos magic <laughs> group <laughs> that they got into, <laughs> or well, that Steve, I guess, yeah, ended up with. I I love I love Curious. that because that's the page I have it open to. Because <laughs> I, I also oh, nice. want yeah. to talk about that. <laughs> um, yeah, because that is one of those things that, you know, it's it's one of the most enduring things, I think, certainly for the two of us about Alan Moore is his his way of conceiving of magic and its relationship to art. And, you know, that he, he for my money, you know, is one of the best living people at giving you a kind of picture of magic that is neither... To quote Alan Moore, that is neither Teen Witch Slumber Party nor <laughs> Gandalf with his yeah. knob pierced. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. That's that something works. in between. And so then, yeah, I'll just read yeah. this excerpt. Warily investigating, he affiliates himself in 1992 to a magical order, the Illuminates of Thanateros, Temple, a New Cross recording studio. Chaos magic, though the name seems harsh. Bit of a mess at worst, more teen goth's bedroom than inchoate pre-creational abyss. He chants along with all the others for a while, recalls his lip-synced prayers at school assembly, then has the temerity to inquire of an order head if there's a reason why the ceremonial robes have to be black. Is told in lieu of an answer that it shows colossal ignorance even to ask. God, what if everybody questioned the most basic principles of ritual like that? It'd be chaos. Clearly not for him, warmed over Austin Osmond's spare without requirement to tread too closely to the edge of the apocalyptic Brixton artist-slash-shaman's risky line. He holds out for a month or two, then jacks it in, though not without a certain fidgety dissatisfaction, an impatience with the numinous. You get all dressed up and she doesn't show. You turn up at the Juju showroom to take magic for a test drive and can't get it off the lot, while all the senior salesmen stand around and suck their teeth. Maybe it hasn't got an engine. Maybe that whole internal combustion thing was only crazy talk. And yet the promise in her eyes, behind the glass, behind the bed. There must be more to wizardry than this, this Gandalf with his knob-pierced stuff. Where's the romantic rush, the Blake ache? Where's the art? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I love that. <laughs> Obviously, the, the Gandalf with his knob-pierced image has stuck with me. <laughs> um... <laughs> And can describe a great many people. Cough, Marco Visconti. Cough, cough. Um. <laughs> well, even the like, the description of it being like when faced with these deep questions, simple questions that some people don't really know. Like, why are the robes black? <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> in, in magic, you can't. Ju- you have to be like, no, no. Everything has a purpose. You can't just be like, not, nah, dude. I don't really. No, I have to. I should probably go look that up <laughs> myself. You know, like you know, there's always this like, I, it, it's not always. I, I shouldn't say there always is, but there's there's often this kind of sense with the stuff that it has to be that it's it's like how do I describe it? Like there is this deeper deeper importance in the way that we're doing this thing, and that we are a part of this deeply rooted tradition. And there's it's like like 
what, what would the word be? Unflappable or something? Is that the correct word? You know, like when it's like uh, this can just be expressive and and be an art form, you know. And so I kind of get the sense of like Alan Moore writing this and Steve Moore as the character who's was experiencing that. It's sort of like you know, let's chill out for a moment <laughs> and just and just realize that we're still human beings. And yeah, I get that. You get that sometimes when you run into certain characters. In the scene. They, in the scene, yeah. you know? Yeah, you're like, okay, you know, I'm I'm probably just going to move over to this other side of the room here <laughs> and, to, and try and talk to someone else, you know? There's a there's a story kind of along those lines in, in this Modern Starlight interview bit where there Alan Moore mentions some at at one of these uh one of these performances of unearthing that Steve Moore was at apparently somebody came up to him came up to Steve after the reading and was like oh my god that was so amazing like when you when you were able to to bring Cellini to visible appearance like what was it what was the spell that you used and that that this person had like was was name checking all the po- was it was it did you do this did you do that and that he was like no, I just made it up. <laughs> yeah. And that this person was like, what? How could you possibly do that? And he's like, it's creativity. Are you like, yeah. are you kidding? Like, yeah. how do you not? And I feel like that's a really central thing to kind of their, their conception of magic that has been really, I think, inspiring for me mm. slash us is that idea that like, while not necessarily completely calling bullshit on tradition, I think there is a, a, a case to be made for lineages and traditions and, and all that kind of stuff that you still do come down to the point that all of those traditions were at one point or another the product of someone's creativity. Right, yeah. That even if we say, like, I mean, it's often kind of silly to me to think about, like, the Western magical tradition, which is about 150 years old, <laughs> to think, mm. that's not that old. <laughs> um, and that most of this is the work of, you know, Eliphas Levy and then, Samuel Liddell McGregor Mathers, you know, and so that 150 years ago, a French guy and a Scottish guy were like, okay, let's come up with a degree structure. Let's come up with, yeah, I know they didn't do it together. Don't email me. Um, (laughs) Slightly more than 150 years ago, a French guy wrote some books, conjured a demon (laughs) once, got really scared and never did practical magic again. 20 something years later, a Scottish guy and his wife, who was herself French and the sister of Henri Bergson, came up with a degree structure. They initiated a variety of poets, one of whom was Aleister Crowley, who then came up with a slightly different degree structure and a slightly different order and (laughs) whatever. So the point is that, like, sure, after 150-ish years, you've got a tradition, but those traditions came out of people being like, we don't have a tradition. We have to make Mm. one. Yeah. And that feels, you know, so Steve Moore questioning, why do the robes have to be black? You know, the answer is, of course, well, because we decided that they were black. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, because we're the Illuminates of Thanateros and we're we're like goth industrial guys and we like black. <laughs> you know, that's... Yeah, right. Which I think is a f- fully acceptable answer. <laughs> oh, yeah, no. Well, if it has a... If it plays a role in the creativity that ties you to the experience, then it's appropriate. You know? Yeah. But that, that's probably like where you come across like different grimoires or different traditions. They might have contrasting information, you know, or just different ways of looking at Kabbalistic data, you know, 
And it's like, well, who's right or wrong? You know, or like the big one, obviously, if, if you're into astrology, is like house systems or something. You know, there's a number of different ways to judge people's house systems, and you're like, well, which way is right? Which way is wrong? And it's like, well, I, who cares? <laughs> it doesn't. It, it doesn't have to be right or wrong. You know, like yeah, it ties into the imagination in this other way. I mean, I think sometimes this this is something I was talking to to Annalise about the other night, but that like. There, oh, it was Solan Duquette did a um, did a talk, you know, with the the kind of primary like metaphysical bookshop here in Vancouver. Oh, cool. uh, Back in the spring, and I watched the the like archive, the stream of it a little bit, a little bit late. I didn't see the live thing, but um, someone I forget exactly what the question was, but in the in the Q and A part towards the end, somebody asked him, somebody asked him if Kabbalah was arbitrary. If it was like, like, oh, this is this is a, a a system, it's a map or whatever, it's not actually the the thing or whatever. And that mm. Lon was like, Yeah, of course it is. Like <laughs> yeah, sure. Like <laughs> yeah. and I don't I don't remember that question being meant as like a challenge, as being like, ah, oh, that's it's bullshit or whatever. But I remember hearing listening to that question and, and his answer and and his totally uh, his total acceptance of like, of course it's arbitrary. And it made me think that sometimes I think people have uh, a bit of difficulty with what arbitrary means. That mm. we think oftentimes that arbitrary means basically bullshit. You know, that if you say, yeah. oh, it's it's arbitrary for some arbitrary reason. You know, we, we think yeah. that it's like, oh, that means that you're just pulling some reason out of the air for... Yeah, like we think it's not real. It's not real that you're yeah. you're coming up with a reason after the fact in order to say basically because I said so. Yeah. You know? But thinking that it's like, well, arbitrary just comes from the same German root as like arbiter, arbeit in German, just means work. Mm. It just means it works. Mm. <laughs> the thinking like, well, yeah, of course Kabbalah is arbitrary because it is a map, like and like yeah. all maps. It is not the territory it describes. You know, it's that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, but it does work. It does. So the world is not ten sephirot suspended like a chandelier, and we climb paths. Like, no, that's obviously not actually what's going on. But as a model, it works. Yeah. Somehow, our mind can can handle the material. Exactly, and I think there's something because I always look at like. There's a guitar in the corner that I always look at, and I think the same thing is true of musical systems. Mm. You know, that sound is not actually 12 distinct pitches. Mm. Yeah. You know, no, it's right. all the frequencies and all the subdivisions of frequencies. Yeah, there's an infinite amount in yeah. between, you know. Same as like... amount between, yeah. Same as integers in math, you know. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, there isn't actually one, two, three, four clearly delineated between each other. There's all yeah. the little... Yeah, and we use that as a conceptual model in order to do this higher mathematics, in order to to produce these works. We have to basically set the ground rules, which is, oh, we have integers. When it's like, what are integers in the real world? You know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, what is that? There's, It's not really a real thing, you know? This is not... Uh, this is not a tangent. We actually are talking about Alan Moore and Steve Moore and, and unearthing <laughs> yeah. and everything. That like, yeah. 
Because a, a big point that they make is this kind of loose equivalency between art and magic. And I know some people, even people I respect, like, say, Alan Chapman, take issue with that. I'm not going to get into why they take issue with that. They can handle that themselves. I do think while art and magic are not the same thing, they do have a great deal in common with each other. And one of those things, I think, one of those commonalities, I think, is very well illustrated by the fact that, yeah, music is not... 12 distinct pitches that then can be, that then repeat up and down in octaves, but it's the same. An A is an A. Every, it's, it's like, that's not actually how this works, but it's yeah. it does make playing music with other people way easier. <laughs> yeah, all right. Hell you know, yeah. if, if we actually yeah. thought, I mean, as, as you and I both know, once you get into like weird electronics land and you have, you know, a max patch, <laughs> a max oscillator or a modular oscillator thing that just is like, no, I just it just goes from really low frequency to really high frequency, and I just turn this knob. Yeah. <laughs> right, <laughs> that yeah. it can be quite hard to do something musically useful with that, mm. especially with other people, without having some kind of framework where we say this is you know, this is the rules. Yeah, these are the rules at play or something. Yeah, and so when I think about the you know back to this thing of Lon being asked, you know, is Kabbalah arbitrary or whatever, is that it's like, well, yeah, it is. It is. All those rules are arbitrary in the sense that, or they might be contingent rules. They might be rules that exist between uh, you and I in the case of if we have two synthesizers with freely running oscillators where we just decide, okay, turn the knob to, to two o'clock and that's where we're starting. And then turn we, we come up yeah. with our own. But also all of Western music theory is arbitrary in the sense right. that over hundreds of years, decades, centuries, whatever exactly it is, you know, people yeah. kind of synthesized a system that works in as a way of playing and writing a certain type of music. But if you go to, say, Indonesia, that system doesn't help you. Yeah, right. You know, they have a completely different system. That's And so yeah. that I think that's the distinction that I'm trying to make here is that those, system, yeah. those systems are arbitrary, but they're not bullshit. But they're, yeah, because they're useful. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah, that comes, I like, that's, I, I have come, I come more and more to the, like, or lately come to the feeling that like magic is an artful experience. And, you know, and my, my perception, my perceptions in that will shift as I go along, you know, maybe like I'll get to a period of time where I'm like, no, I'm very practically thinking about something in a certain way. I don't know, but right now I'm like, no, this is definitely, there is a create, like a creative energy within it, but you're using, you're using your consciousness. You're using your, your interface with reality to work that medium, you know? Um, and so, yeah, like when we were saying like the material itself is just the material of existence, you know, and like a system in Thailand is going to be grow in a very different way than a system in like Western Europe, you know? Uh, but they come from the same material and stuff. And in the book, like there was an interest, I, this, um, you know, when he gets the the coin sword, the like Chinese coin sword, which I'm like, oh, that's super cool. And then he does a ritual on his own, just doing, you know, he just makes it up, essentially. He gets like a genuine response, which is the word like endymion. Uh, and that sets him off on his path, you know. And this reminds me of a Lon Milo thing, because our friend James went to one of his classes on, on uh, uh, Enochian magic. yeah. Because he used to do yeah. those at his house. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and James went to one of them. And James was saying that 
Lon was basically like, yeah, let's, you just fake it till you make it, <laughs> you know, which is good advice pretty much in anything. You know, if you want to do something, you start doing it. If you really are trying to get the correct recipe and you're going to not start until you, everything is in perfect order, you're never going to start. You got to just fucking start, you know? Exactly. So it was cool that he got this, he got this material, he got this sword which is tied to something. So in in unearthing, I'm saying, um, Steve Moore gets a sword, a coin sword, which is like this Taoist tool, this classic tool in Taoism, um, which is tied to him. Like he has an affinity towards uh, Chinese culture that something in that speaks to him. So he got this tool that's related to this culture and it's like immediately powerful to him and his psychology, no matter if it's written anywhere that it's supposed to be, you know, and he's a white dude in England, you know? So, but, and then he immediately does a ritual out of intuition with this tool that he gets and it actually yields really, really good results that sets him on a path for the rest of his life, it seems. Yeah. Um. That's sick. That's, that, that is. that's how you do it. That's how you do it. Exactly. <laughs> no, I mean, because yeah. cause this this was also like, this was another thing Annalise and I were, my wife and I were talking about the other night, but kind of in going back to like the the Gandalf with his knob pierced, the kind of <laughs> <laughs> taking shots at chaos magic, which I should say, I, I think I am mostly a fil- a, a not affiliate. I'm not affiliated with anything, but I, I have I, I have a great affinity for the chaos magic approach and all of that. I do find, even though I, as said on other episodes, find Grant Morrison endlessly silly and do think that the charge of Gandalf with his knob pierce does apply to a lot of it (laughs) very fairly. I like the idea of a kind of basically punk industrial magic. Uh, Yeah. Not as much in aesthetic, even though I like industrial music a lot. Um, I mean, in the sense of a kind of like, let's make our own thing. Let's yeah. Victorian magic should stay in the Victorian era. It's the 80s, the 90s, the 2023, whatever it is. We should have a thing for our time, and that 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 holds water for me because I think that's something that works in art. I do find I do yeah. find sometimes like it can be very easy, say in music, to get into like pantomime cosplay territory with like guys who think they're Bob Dylan. Say yeah, right. <laughs> you know, yeah, absolutely. Guy, like you see yeah. some. I bet I could go somewhere in in Vancouver or certainly in Seattle right now and find guys yeah. dressed exactly like Kurt Cobain playing music that sounds exactly like yeah. Nirvana. Uh, that's hilarious. Cosplay is such a hilarious way to describe it because it's so true. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, as like with any kind of cosplay, that's fine, but it's not particularly interesting. Yeah, right. Yeah. So one of the things I was thinking about with and and discussing with my wife about chaos magic and this this sort of chaos magic versus ritual magic, Golden Dawn, OTO type stuff. And thinking that it, it is a bit like post-punk industrial versus music theory kind of split. That if I think back to my like teenage years where, you know, despite having gone to now, having gone to music school where I met you and everyone else we talk about on this show, um, I had no like natural musical ability <laughs> or or mm. it, it didn't make any sense for me to think I should probably spend my life making music. It's like the whole thing was an uphill <laughs> uphill struggle. 
Um, and I really felt in, in a lot of cases, you know, with this is not a sob story for me, but, but that it was like, I don't know what I'm doing. And that can make it very hard to find, you know, think being a teenager, find people to play with. Um, cause a lot of the other teenagers that I met, it was like, oh, you guys have more of a, a self-conception of being like real musicians where you're like, you know, the names of chords <laughs> and, uh, mm, and that kind yeah. of stuff. And you know, this feeling of like, oh, I'm not, I'm not on that level. I'm not in that club or whatever. And, um, you know, instead what that did was motivate me to say, okay, fine. Well, then I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to figure out my own thing. And there's a certain amount, you know, especially when you're younger, where that is like a, that takes on like an iconoclastic form where you are angrier and more defiant and more like, man, fuck traditional music, you know, but then, you know, then you grow older, you go to music school and you learn the theory stuff. You learn how to do these things and you say, okay, yeah, I get that that's useful. Um, okay, how can I use this to inform what I'm already doing rather than use it as a system of rules? So so when I was thinking sometimes that it's like, yeah, Chaos Magic, you can probably accurately equate that to something like noise music, punk rock, you know, any kind of just self-made DIY grassroots type thing. And you could equate more traditional mm. ceremonial magic to something like classical music. And... That basically mm. neither neither one is good or bad because both of those have their ups and their downsides. You know, the downside of the, right. even though I like it because it's the one I came from, you know, the downside to the DIY punk, post-punk, whatever it is, mindset is sometimes that it's like, you know, if you actually did learn some things, it might be a little bit easier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. If, if you know, I know that knowing the names of chords seems really stuffy and everything, but it does help communicate with other people. Um, yeah, yeah. And then sometimes you can get people where it's like, oh, you've never learned what you're doing. And so it becomes, you know, the longer you do it, the more you're sort of just circling around the same territory over and over and over again. So there's a downside to that. Even if the upside of the post-punk chaos magic end of things is this kind of wild self-driven creativity, the downside would be that sometimes it can get a bit, it can become a bit of a circle jerk. Yeah. And that then the upside of the, then the obvious downside of the, the sort of classical music theoretician, jazz nerd, whatever zone would be that you're hopelessly fixated on rules and theory and you never actually make music. Right, yeah. But then the upside is that, fuck, you know all those, you know, you know how this whole thing works. And so when you get the motivation, right. the will, the context, whatever it is to do something, like you have all the tools at your disposal. Yeah. And so to bring this to some kind of conclusion, what I think is so... One of the things I think is so amazing about Alan Moore's work in general, and what this is making clear, is that he somehow manages to sit right in between the two of them. Yeah. I sense that too with him in his art. And that's I think that's why I have such an like an admiration for his work too. Cause like it comes, it seems to make sense to me that both both of those activities should be tools that are applicable at any time. If you are in need of a creative free explosion, you would take the punk route, you know, and you would just say, oh, fuck all the rules. I'm just going to do it the way that I, I'm, I'm going to do it the way that I feel it comes out, you know, but even that can stagnate on its own. And then you're like, well, now it's unhinged and I have no direction, you know, it's like, okay, well, then I'll go study some, some traditional approaches to stuff and then get, that'll get me on track. You know, it's almost like you could, you could, level things out with a mixture of both, you know, and, and maybe Alan Moore has, does that pretty naturally. 
There's something he, it's it's in that, there's a documentary that came out, I want to say some point, maybe like 2005 or six, called The Mindscape of Alan Moore. That's basically like a long, mm. it's a long interview with him. And it it's, that was the first place where I really heard him like, just go all in on the magic thing and really explain a lot of it. And um, that was one of the, I know one of the things he says in there is, is an idea I've thought about a lot, which is the, you know, that you have the the old alchemical premises of Solway at coagula, d- dissolve and coagulate, like to, to break apart into its constituent elements and then to bring back together into the whole or whatever. And that, you know, one of the way he brings that up in this Mindscape documentary is talking about the idea that, you know, the for the most part, the 20th century was all Solway, that it was all breaking everything apart. And you find that in, you know, physics from... Uh, Einstein through quantum mechanics to string theory to all that kind of stuff. You find it in art with modernism becoming, you know, James Joyce to postmodernism to, you know, House of Leaves and David Foster Wallace and whatever those that everything is getting broken down. Meta fictions, meta everything, all the yeah. the movement of musical genres from discrete mm-hmm. things to massively hybridized, you know, to something like footwork where you feel like this is the, the most yeah. dissolved, you know, thing um and that he's you know he was sort of saying in that at least like i think what we need now in the beginning of the 21st century is a little more coagula there's another place where he's he said this kind of as um that like as the elements as like the the sort of the fire and the water you know that at different points in in culture we've been different elements and that the one we're at now is needing to learn how to become steam that it's sort of it's you know we mm. can't be fire or water anymore, we have to be something that happens when fire and water react. Mm, And thinking that that might be what we're saying he's managed to do in his work is become steam. Oh, nice. Well, especially if he's thinking about it, then he's making an effort towards that, which we can at least detect in some way, you know? I like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, I, I can, I have, I have probably could spend the rest of my life just making unconnected utterances about Alan Moore. Um, <laughs> because seriously, like it's, 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 it's the best it is. It's, it's just responsible for the best stuff in the world, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and one of the things, I mean, we've, we've both alluded to this with our sort of emotional reaction to the, the kind of sadness and solemnity and everything of, of unearthing, but there isn't, he, he has an ability that basically no one else has to just bring me to tears, but in a way that it's, it's just like, it's not, it's joy and sadness commingled. It's, it's unbelievable what he can do. Yeah. That's what, that's the kind of the sense that I got reading Unearthing. It was like this sadness that I was sort of afraid of, but also like really, really attracted to. Yeah. Like in a spiritual way, like I, I, I was like, Steve Moore's character, the description to me was this eternally beautiful figure, even though if you think about it as a human in life, if you took away all of the like subtle majesties in the story and he was just this dude, then it seems really bleak, (laughs) you know? And I'm like, and it's just strange that like, because I don't think Alan Moore was making it to be sad. No. You know? 
And I don't, and obviously Steve Moore was still alive. Steve Moore probably didn't even think of it as like this kind of, I don't know how he perceived it. If he perceived it as like, fuck, my life is sad. (laughs) You know, I, I doubt that because it was really interesting. So yeah, there is this, I guess what, what's happening is that the beauty, I mean, Alan Moore is showing us the beauty within it that's like normally hidden because speaking for myself, I'm always on this kind of sense of like, okay, I have things to do in society. You know, I have a checklist of like, oh, I need to make art. I need to make myself known in that way. Or I have like social activities that I I have to be aware of, you know? Um, so I'm always kind of thinking about like, how do I, how do I accomplish the checklist of, of being a human being? And this story is like, it forces me to look at just the subtleties of my own life. I, I, I went for a walk with my dog after reading this, you know, and you can tell a lot when you're walking your dog, you're like, what kind of mood are you in? You know, just by judging how your dog is, is walking. Um, and I'm like, I was like walking slower and I was like, I kind of want to just enjoy the quietness of this, you know, because I have the right to do that as a human being. I have the right to enjoy myself as just being, and it doesn't have to be this sense of accomplishment. You know, other times I have, when I have anxiety on walks, I'm like, fuck, I got to get back. Cause I got to finish that piece of music or I got to finish that thing because I got to make a name for myself, <laughs> you know, like shit like that. That's like not really real. Like in, in actuality, like life is just life. And, I can enjoy this, these small moments. So my long tangent, I'm saying like Steve Moore's presence in this story is sort of sad and quiet seeming, but it's like infinitely beautiful because he touches these parts of the human experience that not many people can, you know, through his art and through his spirituality and, you know, and all of these things. And I'm like, that's fucking cool. So that's what makes it beautiful to me, even though socially the it's like kind of the superficial social aspects makes it feel kind of sad and, and uh, almost frightening to me. You know? Yeah. I mean, there is more of that, you know, feeling as far as biographical documents go, you know, I'm, I don't know why this came to mind because for humor purposes, I guess, because it's something just horrible, but, uh, the filth by um, the fucking Motley Crue guy. <laughs> the the biography of Motley Crue. Nice. And they made that movie, that like oh, yeah. Netflix original yeah. adaptation of it, like five or six years ago. Which I watched. <laughs> oh, I watched it too. <laughs> um, I uh, I remember talking to to Matthew at a at a work thing back when it came out and we were both like, were you disappointed by how tame it was? Yeah, I was too. Like, <laughs> yeah. I really thought it was going to be more fucked up. And um, yeah, that was funny. But, uh, but just think about something like that, you know, that you, you know, you have, or fuck even like I have right next to me, any of the, the five or six Crowley biographies that I have, like there are certain figures where a biography of them, the appeal of a biography of them is like really obvious, you know, whether yeah. it's something completely stupid like Motley Crue, where you're like, yeah, I want to read about guys shooting heroin into their nuts or whatever, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> <that's>, yeah. <laughs> it's just total freak show 
plus like like sex fantasy. Like, dude, Tommy Lee had a five way. No fucking way. Yeah, right. You know, and Vince Neil killed a guy. Whoa, no way. <laughs> Wait, really? We're happy about that. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> um, anyway, they um. You know, whether it's something like that or somebody like, you know, Crowley or, or I don't know, David Bowie or where yeah, Lou Reed, yeah. where you feel like, okay, I get why we want to hear about this person because there's like real triumphs. There's this real sense that you're like, regardless of what your thoughts on the Beatles are, the Beatles, they're the biggest rock band ever. We want, I know yeah. why we all care about John Lennon. Where Steve Moore right. is like, so it's a... a Lonely, unmarried, childless writer of minor renown who lived in a house for his entire life and then died <laughs> yeah. there to be to yeah. be remembered by like five or six other incredibly nerdy British men. <laughs> it's like <laughs> you make it sound so glamorous. <laughs> no. Yeah, I, there is something very sort of uh, potentially like, why is this story worth telling if you do it in broad strokes? Yeah. Where you just say, right. you know, yeah, it was a guy who didn't really accomplish much, um, seemed very lonely, and then died. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, some of this is like, that's always part of the story with even these bigger, I mean, some of that is is the thing, maybe it's not what I'm supposed to take from the, the Crowley story, but the part of the Crowley story that always sticks with me is, is the end, you know, is, is him alone mm. in that, you know, rented room in Hastings kind of like the glory is, the glory is gone. And it's like, yeah. now, you know, I know I'm kind of on my way out. I've chilled out a lot. I'm kind of meeting with random people here at this hotel, you know, and I feel like that's the case in yeah. a lot of these, a lot of these stories that it's like we like the the bluster and the drama and and everything, but there's also the I think the real depth comes when that goes away and you get a sense of even someone yeah. just horrible like Vince Neil, <laughs> there's still some some sadness <laughs> that shines through in a terrible adaptation of a terrible book about a terrible band. <laughs> populated by terrible people. <laughs> um, that, that it's those it's those little human moments, and I, I think because I don't know that's what's relatable. I think sometimes we read biographies because we want something that isn't relatable. We want the big drama, and then what we actually end up mm. pulling from it is the relatable bit. That and that that kind of that's that classic kind of hero story, the Campbell kind of thing, right? We look at these larger than life characters, and then we draw connections to ourselves but like yeah unearthing is is literally it's almost too close <laughs> to normal life so it seems sort of maybe frightening in some ways you know for me it was you know i think some of that 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 frightening quality because i i get that very strongly too and i i think some of it is like it's this interesting thing that alan moore manages to do with it which is that it is not mundane even though it is about a person who lives a life very relatable to all of us, even right. even people with a more active social life can still relate more, I think, to Steve Moore than to Vince Neil yeah. um, or Aleister Crowley. And um, never thought I'd say those two names right next to each <laughs> other. <laughs> um, no, but you know that uh, 
something that's like coming to mind is I'm like, this is not some mumblecore thing. <laughs> you know, this is not some like uh, story of a guy who's just a guy like the rest of us. Like there is still some sense of what he says in the criticism of the the chaos magic thing. Like where's the, where's the romance? Where's the Blake ache? Where's the art? Whatever. It's like all that's in there. And it's his ability to, to like, tease that stuff out of a basically completely normal life that I think is what makes Alan Moore so amazing for me, is that, you know, so often, even, okay, he's, sure, probably best known for his stuff that involves superheroes and larger, um, larger-than-life characters and scenarios, but is this sort of ability, I mean, Jerusalem is perfect for this, to really just take, I mean, because Jerusalem he takes, like, this is about, unearthing is about uh, Shooter's Hill in London, Jerusalem is about the like five square blocks where he grew up in Northampton mm. and manages to make basically make those the center of the universe mm. that like everything ties together in these five blocks in Northampton. And I'm going to tell you why. Yeah. And it's somehow his ability to do that. It doesn't make the things larger than life. It shows the immensity of tiny lives. Mm. Nice. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. In every single irrelevant one of us is still the entire universe. Yeah, hell yeah. And I think that's where that that fear and trembling sensation that I get that you were talking about yeah. comes from is that sense that's like, oh my God, I am the cosmos. Yeah. Right. And he's reminding me that. That's mm. always the, and I'm getting, starting to tear up now, but that it's that, <laughs> it's always the thing with him that it's like this memory that like this is this is real. We're really in this bitch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Every single one of us is is the universe. Yeah. And it's so horrifying and so beautiful and so big and so small. And it's I can't believe he somehow manages to do it over and over and over again. And it's yeah. unbelievable. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, what else we got? Oh, the weird you, circum... No, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, no. I was going to ask. Do you know about Uniceptor 4? No. Okay. This sounds completely was, new to me. Oh, because that, that's in... He, that's brought up. Oh. Like, he's dreaming about Uniceptor 4, Steve Moore. I'm, I'm, I'm a fraud then. No, I, I, it must be something from, like, one of his, like, sci-fi books or something. Yeah. I don't know what it was. It was almost like this were this world that made contact with him. This is the way it's described. So it must be just like his writing, maybe his early writing. Yeah. Yeah, because of his, I mean, I have these, you know, I, I can't, whoops, I can't say I've read the trigrams of Han cover to cover or anything, but um, I do, I did read another book that I think is, oh no, it wouldn't have been out yet. This would have come out. This would would be another thing from Mud and Starlight. But um, Steve Moore's book Somnium, which is his mm. like semi autobiographical. Uh, this is the one he's writing in this, right? Exactly. That's okay. Yeah. Right. It does yeah. come up in there. Um, yeah. yeah. Somnium is uh, you know his his story where it, that's about a it's about like a Victorian character who goes to the you know the bull pub on shooter's hill which is the real pub down the street from steve moore's house and then discovers kind of in the basement like an oracular cave and he's able to go back through 
the ages and sort of becomes his mm. own Endymion. And then there's, he's writing a story which is then set in like Elizabethan times where his analog, so it does the whole metafictional thing of Steve Moore's. Yeah. This is Steve Moore, but then the Steve Moore within the book is writing about his own Steve Moore. And Yeah. Um, yeah. Which yeah. I kind of think, this is what I think is the ending of Unearthing, is that he sort of absolves into that storyline. Because the way he describes, like, or the way it's described when he goes for that final walk, it's sort of like, oh, this this was written already. Yeah. He, and so he just sort of, it, almost like he feedbacks loops into his story that he's writing and then disappears in it. Yeah. Something. Yeah. No, and that's, I think that has something to do with like the, or a connection can be made there to the somewhat strange circumstances surrounding Steve Moore's death. Oh, yeah. And I, I don't mean strange in any kind of conspiratorial or or terrestrially mysterious way. Um, I mean more that he, this comes up in Modern Starlight uh, to a point, but there was some other bit that I, I now can't remember what interview this was from. Must have been something on the internet. I will try to find it. If I can, I'll put it in the show notes. Um, but Alan Moore, you know, given that Steve Moore was predeceased by his parents and brother, so there were, you know, he had no had no children or spouse or anything like that. So Alan Moore became the executor of his estate and everything passed mm. to him after Steve died. And so, as is mentioned in Unearthing, um, you know, Steve Moore meticulously kept a meticulous diary every day of his adult life. And wrote down all of his dreams. And so in, in Mud and Starlight, Alan Moore, you know, that he's asked towards the end, you know, oh, what are you working on now? And he's like, well, I'm not really working on anything. I'm just going through Steve's journals and uh, looking for stuff, you know, bits of infos, whatever. Reading about my old friend. So apparently in so doing, he came to the journal entries leading up to, you know, the, the, the last entries leading up to Steve's death. And he was being told at the time by Cellini, goddess of the moon, yeah, you're going to die soon. As we've promised, you know, you, you, you're you coming with me. You know, you're you're good. Nothing to worry about or whatever. But like, you should probably get your shit in, in order <laughs> because mm. the end is nigh. And he was like, okay, well, get all, guess I'll make sure. And so the last thing he put out, the thing he was working on when he died was his non-fictional book, Cellini, goddess of the moon. Um, so he's like, all right, I should probably make sure I finish that up, get the manuscripts together, all of that kind of stuff. And um, the last journal entry in his dream journal, so the, the last time Steve Moore dreamed, his dream was that he was sitting in his upstairs office at his desk, working on something on the computer, when, you know, the full light of the moon through the window, then a, a man was outside the window in darkness, like rapping at the window. And Steve said, you know, that he looked over at the window and was like, who is this man, you know, and whatever. And then, you know, he woke up. The dream faded, something like that. So flash forward a couple days from, you know, a week or so from that, that last dream. And, you know, the neighbors haven't seen Mr. Moore out for his walks or anything like that and start to think... Should we maybe check on him? They try to, you know, they knock on the door. Nobody answers. They call the phone. Nobody answers. Okay, I think we know older older single man. We might know what happened here. So they call the fire department. The fire department arrives at night by the light of the moon 
and also not re receiving any kind of answer at the door, one of the firemen puts a ladder up to the window, the office window, climbs up on it, and raps on the window. Yeah. Then noticing, you know, the figure of Steve Morris slumped on his desk, motionless. You know, the fireman opens the, manages to get the window open, climbs in and says, yeah, you know, this guy's been dead for three days, four days, you know, however long it's been. But um, yeah, so accurate uh, premonition of his own post-death circumstances. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, as well. We're in real, like, Clive Bruckman's final repose X-Files territory <laughs> with that one. Mm. <laughs> um, <laughs> Well, yeah, he's definitely, he had like, he definitely had a connection to these like deeper mysteries of the world. You know? Oh, yeah. So, yeah, it's wild. It's really, it's, wild. it's really nuts. Um, I mean, it's always funny. Like, it makes me think of a, I forget where this is, which Ramsey Dukes thing this is from, but there's some, somewhere or other Ramsey Dukes said, you know, yeah, it's always funny how, you know, uh, seasoned practicing magicians will still get together and say, man, I can't believe it. I did this bit of magic and it worked. <laughs> Dude, yeah. And so there is something kind of funny that we're, you know, we hear about a guy who's like, yeah, he managed to, you know, have this established connection with a goddess and get her to show up visibly and and got premonitions of his own death accurate down to the exact image or whatever. And, and it's like, yeah, but isn't that what, shouldn't that have been obvious? That's what yeah. he spent his life trying to do. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. Yeah. It'd be a bit like, this guy picks up the guitar every day and plays it. He wrote a fucking song. <laughs> How did he do that? He wrote a song. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, maybe this, maybe this doesn't go in. Maybe you had this out. But this was like a personal experience. I did. It was kind of wild when he described in the book, like, Cellini as, like, a young Turkish girl or something. Or a young, you know, like that. Cause I had that exact experience. Like, uh, I one time did like just this meditation on like, cause I got this like Kabbalistic workbook where you meditate on the Sephiroth and it starts with Keter. And so I got the this incense specific to Keter and I lined up all like the ace tarot on my, on my, uh, altar. And I just burned the incense and did a meditation and, like got other objects that like represent that sephira and just like meditated on it for hours. And it was really, really wild and weird. And it was early on. So you had like sort of stamina and the desire to get weird, you know, which is funny enough, something that slowly kind of goes away that you have to kind of then work to get back, you know? Um, but I was, yeah, I did all this stuff and was like, cool, you know, whatever. And then went to bed and had like a very, very vivid dream that I wrote down and uh and and like the dream was I was like I was like on this rooftop that place like trying to get around but then eventually I got outside of this building like it was almost like a bank I was standing outside of the bank me Dave like outside of the bank here and I was waiting because I knew I was waiting and then the perspective shifted and it shifted to this like young Arabic girl and I was her, like I was seeing through her eyes and she was in this kind of like small area, like, uh, like a, uh, the, like the back room with the, the bulbs you know, backstage at a, oh, yeah. or something yeah. like that, like a small dressing room, I was going to say. Um, and she was there kind of getting ready 
And it was kind of wild because this like, this big, like almost like Egyptian dude came up behind her and drew with his fingertips, like up, up her chest, up her face down, like, and it left this trail of like Arabic writing or magical sort of text. I don't know what it was like this, like luminous sort of text popped out um, when he did that. And then she was like, I could sense, cause I was her at that moment. I could sense like, okay, I'm ready. I'm ready to go, you know, like to go meet me up on the street level. And I went and there was like this ladder to go climb to get up there. And I started to climb the ladder, but then I got kind of scared as her. I was like, no, I can't do it. I can't do it. And then it like sort of drifted away. Like I didn't, it didn't happen for some reason, you know, and I wrote this all down. So I'm, I'm doing, this was this was in 2017 or 20, 2017 when I had this dream or something. But I wrote it down and it was significant for me. Like, I didn't get a name from her or anything. I didn't get any information. I just, like, wrote it down and attributed my own name, just whatever, just made some shit up. But it was really strange because she was a young Arabic girl in this dream. And then when Steve Moore in this book was like, Oh, actual, like actual contact with this is, is a young Arabic girl. I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, I don't, is that a common thing for goddesses? Or is that like, are we touching upon a similar thing? Did I legit touch upon something? You know, um, it was always significant to me, though I haven't had any like reconnection to that, that experience. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I will again in the future or something. I don't know. Yeah. But I've had other dreams like this that are where characters return uh, it, with Egyptian sort of overtones and stuff. Um, and just not really knowing, I guess, just have to continue doing the research and stuff. Or doing rituals. I probably just need to continue doing the rituals to have them just like, like to raise up the energy to just have these things come back, <laughs> you know? Yeah. That's what I'm thinking, but yeah. No, it is. I mean, like, yeah, I'm, I'm unsure if we're, what, if this is being left in or not. So I, I don't care. We'll just, yeah, yeah. We'll talk. We'll, we if might it's awkward, it. we I'll might cut it. it. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. No, but that like, there is that, um, what is it? It's like, I mean, sort of back to the equivalence or the, the commonality between magic and art thing. I do feel like, you know, if you, if you want to make music, you probably have to make music. Like, you probably have to make a bunch of music mm. and, like, just keep making tracks. Like, if, if I think back to, like, when I started, okay, I got, I've got Ableton and I want to make shit that sounds like Aphex Twin or whatever. Yeah. That it was, like, I can, I can do the, like, research and read about stuff and all that kind of stuff and that's really useful, but also I should probably just keep opening Ableton. Yeah. And keep just making tracks and, like, if they're, if they're bad, just make more. Yeah. Just like try again. Yeah. And I do feel like there's something, there's some, I mean, this, this now sort of, I'm kind of unfocused, but this sort of ties back in, I think with the, what I was trying to get at with like the, the, the chaos magic is more of a punk vibe and the ceremonial magic is more of a music theoretical vibe. Yeah. That it's like, uh, I should say the specific way that I was thinking about that the other night was was in terms of how like in sort of stereotypes what you get 
I feel like what you hear about, what you encounter, what you maybe, what maybe we ourselves experience or whatever is like that the chaos magic route leads often to like getting your fingers burned. Mm. You dive headlong into something. You say, sigils, I can do those. Those are super easy. All I have to do is draw something and jack off onto it. I can do that. Like, <laughs> you know? That, right. And that you kind of think like, or I don't know, whatever it is. You just think, oh, I can do this. I can make up my own way of, of doing something. And, you know, maybe it works. You do a sigil for some simple thing and it works. And then you do it for something else. And then sooner or later you've done it. And, oh, God, I didn't actually want that to happen. <laughs> yeah. You know, or you end up with some kind of thing like that. And that, you know, then sort of in response to that, I find oftentimes the line that comes from more of the ceremonial traditionalist type camp is like, well, yeah, that's why we need a degree structure. And that's why we need like mentorship and the idea that like certain, you know, you're you're not taught certain things until certain times or whatever. And I feel like that's great, but that can also run the risk of never doing anything. Yeah. I think it's very, so it starts to feel to me again, like the the middle ground is where it is, the becoming steam thing, whatever, but that it's, it's like yeah. the more free form, you know, punk industrial chaos magic, whatever route is great because let's put this in musical terms. You can just say, I don't give a shit that I don't know the names of the chords. I don't give a shit that I can't play jazz. I don't want to play jazz. <laughs> you know, I'm gonna, yeah. I'm fine screeching noises and, and weird poetry. That's what we're gonna do. You know, I can find one or two other people who want to start a band and we'll do it like that. And you're like, the upshot of that is you started a band. <laughs> you know, you, yeah. you, you've started, you've got a gig. You started playing gigs and, you know, you, you just started making music and that's awesome. We've covered sort of the downsides and then it's like the, the upside of the more traditional approach is that you're like, I know all the things, I've practiced well, I have the skills, I have this and that. But you're like, wow, I've been playing, I've been making music, studying music or whatever for 10 years and I've never played a gig. Yeah. You know, and that it feels sometimes like you want to be in the, in the middle zone there where it's like, there is a point where it's like, just do the thing. And I, and yeah. I think, I'm not, and I'm not, not saying this like just you or whatever, but I mean like all of yeah, us yeah. or whatever that, that I think sometimes this, this, especially when we, when we get into more of the like, thinking now about like biographies, when we get more into like the story of people like Crowley or Spare or, you know, even Alan Moore, there can sometimes be this feeling that like, oh, I'm so far away from ever being like them. You know, like, oh, they're mm -hmm. on some massive height that I can't possibly ever reach. And what I'm doing is so paltry compared to what they do or something. And that's one spot where I find like the the commonality between magic and music often breaks down is because my experience a lot of the time with myself as a musician, and I think with a lot of us, is that we look at Autecker and we don't think, oh, I'm not worthy. We think, yeah, I'm going to be fucking Autecker. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. You know, and maybe there's, hopefully there's still some humility where you say, look, I know I'm not Autecker now. Right, <laughs> yeah. Well, it, you know, it definitely comes to the sense where it's like, I'm going to try and figure out what they're doing. I bet I can you do know? that. Yeah, like, I yeah. think I can figure out the right combination of approaches to kind of figure this out, you know? Like, yeah. yeah. I, it doesn't It doesn't take away from my, like, respect for that, their creativity. I'm, I'm constantly yeah. reminded that I'm like, oh, wow, there's a reason why I fucking love this band, you know? Yeah. But. 
and there's something like I I do still have, in all this like leave room for you know the well it's just something this one person got to do and that was it <laughs> you know they really mm-hmm. were unique that that's always a possibility but, <laughs> yeah right yeah but it is just funny sometimes to think about how like how there's that kind of like obfuscation I think in yeah. I mean, you definitely do get people like this in music and art and that idea that like, oh no, you're not, you're not worthy of becoming like so-and-so. But it just feels like there's kind of an, more of an established rebelliousness in like art and music to say like, fuck you, I'm going to do my own thing. Yeah. And that's where I think sometimes if I try to, if I try to think about what, maybe bringing this back to Alan Moore a little more is that like, when I th- when I think about Alan Moore, I think about a band like Coil, and yeah, and specifically like late Coil, like Magic to Pl- uh, Music to Play in the Dark, like yeah, definitely. I had that vibe too. Actually, it's funny in the in the book. Not to cut you off, the they keep saying John Silence, but I kept thinking John, John Balance, Balance, yeah. And I was like, oh shit, is this a Coil? And I was like, no, wait, that's a different name. But it but it did remind. I was immediately like wanting to put Coil into the story. It feels really, and the music isn't, the music kind of sounds like Coil. Yeah, right, yeah. At points, at least. Yeah. But no, thinking that like, because the problem with, the problem with equating sort of non-ceremonial magic with like punk is that punk is explicitly like a youthful reactionary movement. And I don't think that that really holds much water as you get above 25. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that... Yeah. And I think, like, when I think about just music, just just the music, I'm like, I never, ever listen to punk. Post-punk, however. Yeah. You know, that I'm like, Joy Division are good. The Cure are good. Wire are good. Yeah, hell yeah. You know, but I never want to listen to the Ramones. <laughs> <laughs> or Black Flag, or... Because that just makes me think, like, what am I, 17? I, I get the same reaction, Yeah. And I feel like some of that, like, then why I bring up, like, Coil is because there's a similar thing that happens with, like, you know, industrial music, like Throbbing Gristle, and that kind of first wave of industrial music, also really reactionary and really, like, spitting in your face, man. Fuck you. Yeah. But the bands, it's like a lot of those artists and bands just, well, broke up. It was a youthful thing. That was that. But the ones that made it longer, like Coil, you know, you get Coil in the late 90s and early 2000s, and I feel like it was much more subtle and nuanced, and it was like, okay, well, Thaipal Sandra is in the band now, and he actually knows how to play instruments. Yeah. And, like, Ossian Brown and, and you know, uh, what's his name? Cliff Stapleton and, like, some of the, the session people. It's like, okay, we do want to do something that is somewhat traditionally musical, and we're not afraid of having members of the band who just play normal instruments. But also John Balance definitely cannot sing. <laughs> and <Yeah>. like, <laughs> you know, he's just going to do his thing. We're not, we can't, we can't ho- rein his thing in at all. He's just going to yeah. do whatever he wants to do and it'll be great. And sometimes he'll just be really drunk and whatever. <laughs> and then like sleazy, it's like, well, he also doesn't really know what he's doing, but he he has taste and so he can, yeah. he's going to play a sampler on Ableton and he's going to make the weird noises in a, and it's going to blend together in like a really cool way that doesn't feel um, reactionary, but also doesn't feel traditionalist. Yeah. And I feel like that's the same thing I get with Alan Moore. Mm, yeah. 
that he yeah. yeah most definitely i guess i would say probably maybe maybe where to end this um the one one sort of final steve moore related thing that i uh that i've noticed is really that that like it's right around when steve moore died that alan moore's output got much darker oh yeah um which is a little bit silly to say because like from hell is really fucking dark and, you know <laughs> but just thinking because like you know okay so steve moore died in 2014 and then in throughout 2016 um alan moore released the 12 volumes of providence his uh hp lovecraft setting and um and then we also all know what else happened in 2016 um and so I remember reading Providence and feeling like getting to the end and realizing like this is this is the dark version of Promethea, his comic from the late '90s and early mm-hmm. 2000s, and Promethea is one of the comics in which Steve Moore um, has a you know little cameo as a as an Easter egg thing, and but Promethea is also really feels like this is the if if Steve Moore is the guy who taught Alan Moore about magic, then Promethea being this kind of realization of the catalytic golden dawn magical tradition in comic book form feels like massively indebted to Steve Moore as a living presence. Yeah. And then I can't help but see Providence as this is the world without Steve Moore in it. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it feels like, you know, Jerusalem is its, I mean, and then Jerusalem comes out, which is of course, Alan Moore's in, in a paraphrase of his own words is, you know, his way of solving death. <laughs> and, um, you know, reading Jerusalem, it, it does, you also do get the sense, like, this is because Steve died. And I think in Mud and Starlight, he says, you know, this is my way of dealing with it, or rather not dealing with it. Yeah. But that makes me think of kind of Steve Moore as a, and Alan Moore's memorialization of Steve Moore. God, there's a lot of more in that <laughs> sentence. Um, <laughs> more, more, more. <laughs> um, <laughs> But it, it makes me think of of kind of the Unearthing Project and Providence and Steve Moore in general in, in similar terms to how I've I've kind of come to think about David Bowie and the fact of like Black Star coming out when it did in the Dude, way that yeah, it did. Right. That it's like Black Star is I mean, we can do an entire separate thing on Black Star, but like <laughs> um yeah. I've sometimes had the thought about Black Star and about David Bowie dying when he did, that it was a bit like him saying, like, I have to go now. You guys are going to need this. <laughs> and that I have a feeling, I had the same feeling about, about what began with Unearthing and what seems to have concluded with mm-hmm. Jerusalem. That's like Unearthing, Providence, and Jerusalem. That it's Alan Moore being like, yeah, shit's getting dark. <laughs> You're going to need this. Yeah. And that's why I think, I remember saying this to you, I think when Providence was still coming out in single issues, but that I was like, Alan Moore is one of the only people that I completely trust to lead me into the dark, you know? Mm. That he's like, I'm going to show you something that's going to be very hard for you to take, but you need to see it and I'm not doing this to hurt you. And where I feel like I I believe you, so. Yeah. Yeah, hell yeah. I can't do cool. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's such a big, it's such a big topic, but.
This has been the Modern Rubbish Podcast. You can follow us on Instagram at Modern Rubbish Podcast, and you can find show notes, links, and more at modernrubbish.ca. If you enjoy what you heard, please give us a five-star rating, and feel free to reach out to us via email at modernrubbishpodcast at gmail.com. Finally, if you'd like to help support what we do, you can become a patron on Patreon, or you can make a donation via Ko-fi. This podcast is a labor of love, and all of your support means the world to us. should say we were recording this the day after his birthday we almost did it on his birthday oh yeah <laughs> happy birthday alan moore um yeah oh yeah happy birthday